it is actually pretty easy to lose God. Luke is the only gospel writer to include a story in his writings from Jesus' childhood. No other gospel writer includes anything from the time that Jesus is a very small child until his ministry begins at age 30. But here, Luke includes this story where Jesus is actually 12 years old. And Luke is probably, most surely, writing based on interviews that he had with people who were really there. And so Luke more than likely sat down with Mary, said, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about the story. Tell me about his childhood. And from all that she must have told him, he includes this story. And it tells us a lot about Jesus. And it tells us about his mission even at age 12. Now, the text starts out this way, that Jewish, uh, that Jesus... uh, parents, Mary and Joseph, were devout observers of uh, Judaism. And so there were three feasts that if you were a Jewish person, you needed to uh, worship at every year. There was the Feast of the Passover, there was Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. But not all Jewish families could afford to go to all three. And so if they could only choose one, they would choose the Passover. The Passover was this uh, national holiday wrapped up into family reunion, with, and it center, and, but everything centered on worshiping God. And so it is this great celebration. And so uh, Joseph loads up the van. He packs the family in. You know, they head to Jerusalem. They observe all the holy days of the Passover. They're with family. They're keeping God in the center of things. They're doing what Jewish people do. It's about a week long, and then they make their journey back home to Nazareth, but there's one problem. They get about a day's uh, journey from Jerusalem and they look around at each other and Jesus is nowhere. Jesus is missing. He can't be found. Oh, he's not with you? I thought he was with, no, I thought he was with you. Well, Joseph, what'd you do with Jesus? Where's my son, right? It's that. And panic sets in and we're told that Joseph and Mary are greatly distressed. And you can understand that if you've ever had a lost kid. They have a lost Jesus. That's the first thing we see in the text, a lost Jesus. And probably the first question that anybody has when they read this story is, how in the world do you lose this kid? Right? How in the world does this happen? Well, people would have traveled to these feasts, to Passover especially, in big, huge caravans. And women and children would have been leading the way and setting the pace so that they didn't go too fast. And the men and the younger men would have been in the back. And they would have traveled in these big groups. Relatives and whole villages sometimes would travel together. And everybody kind of of kept an eye on everyone else. And at Jesus' age, 12, he's kind of in between, right? He could have been up front with the women and children, but he could have also been in the back with the men and the younger men. And he could have hopped from one group to the other and not been missed. And Joseph would have thought he was with Mary and Mary would have thought he was with Joseph and the other men. And maybe both of them thought that he was with some other relatives. Um, And that's a different way, right? This is not this is not Mary and Joseph loading the kids into a minivan. They didn't, have, they didn't leave a kid at the gas station here. Uh, and when you think about it that way, Mary and Joseph are kind of superstar parents compared to some of us. How many of you have ever lost a kid? I went uh, this week, I was in three or four different groups, and I said, um, tell me about a time 
when you were in charge of a kid and you lost that kid. And there was not a person in any of those groups that couldn't tell me some story. There were teachers, oh yeah, we were on this trip and uh, I kind of lost this kid and we had to just, you know, it was a whole fiasco. And uh, there were grandparents, oh yeah, I was charged with my grandkid one time and I couldn't find him anywhere. And uh, then, then there was um, our uh, ministry administrator, Jamie Beckham, she told this story on her husband, Bob. She said that uh, back when Kyle, their oldest son, was just a first, maybe kindergarten or first grade or something like that, Bob's playing softball over here at the uh, college fields. And he takes Kyle to play softball because there's a playground over there. And so Kyle's playing while Bob's playing softball. And Bob gets into the game, you know, and and he probably gets a winning hit. Who knows? And they win the game. And uh, he is proud of himself all the way home. And he steps through the door and he he's excited to tell his wife about, you know, his victory on the field. And she says, that's wonderful. Where's my son? I will be right back. (laughs) And he heads over to the college field. And in the meantime, he gets there. No, Kyle. Kyle's not there. And in the meantime, Kyle, this little kindergarten first grader has decided, you know, I guess everybody left me. I guess I need to walk home. And so he starts walking home. He, somehow he finds Dairy Queen. Uh, it used to be Dairy Queen, right? Now it's the butcher block. But he finds it and he knows that if he heads a certain direction from Dairy Queen, that he'll run into his house, some, some familiar, you know. So that's what he does. In the meantime, uh, Jamie and Bob are trying to get, this is before cell phones. They're trying to call one another and they're on phones because Jamie's got the prayer chain going. Uh, Ron Billiard shows up on Jamie's doorstep to pray with her for the lost kid, you know. Um, and he finally comes stumbling home. Let's just say that wasn't Bob Beckham's greatest day, right? No offense to Kyle or to Jamie or to Bob, but that's a kid in Fort Scott, Kansas that gets lost. This is the son of God that gets lost. Mary and Joseph, you can understand their, their own worst critics, right? They're blaming themselves. How in the world do you lose the Son of God? And the answer is, you lose the Son of God just like you lose any other kid. You get distracted. Bob is thinking about the great hit that he had. Bob is thinking about the wonderful play that he made to put somebody out at third base. Bob is thinking of all of those things except Kyle. And we get that way. We lose Jesus. We get distracted like that. It's not just Mary and Joseph that lose the Son of God. We lose the Son of God too. It's difficult to find Jesus if I'm distracted. If I'm distracted. Maybe I get distracted by the world, by forces that are pulling me away from God's kingdom and God's purposes and God's will. Maybe I get distracted by just general busyness because I've got all of these things in my daily life and the the days just kind of slip away and we get to the end and all of a sudden we realize, we look back, God wasn't really a part of it. He wasn't included. We lost him. Sometimes we get distracted even by the good things that we do, even by ministry, right? We do stuff for God, but we do... We do so much for God. We get so busy doing stuff for God that sometimes we miss God and we lose Jesus. And Mary and Joseph were doing what faithful, devout Jewish people did. 
They were observing religious protocol. And in the middle of this righteous pilgrimage, this week-long celebration where God is supposed to be the center of everything that happens, they actually end up losing God. So here's the question. What do we do when we lose God? What do we do? I want you to look at what Joseph and Mary do because we could probably take some notes. They head back to Jerusalem. And the backstory there is that they actually go back to the beginning. Because Luke tells us that Jerusalem was where they first dedicated Jesus in the temple. And so Jerusalem is this starting place. And what they're really doing here is they're going back to the beginning. They go back to where they first dedicated Jesus at the temple. And so that's probably pretty good good advice for us too. When we lose God, let's just go back to the beginning. And there's a blank in your notes. I want to give you two words, two possible words that you could put in that blank. And uh, you choose the one that you want, okay? Uh, Either repent or church. When we lose God, we need to go back to the beginning and repent. Repentance, if there's a biblical word for the concept of going back to the beginning, it would be this word repentance. Repentance literally means to turn around, to go the other way. Repentance is going back to the basics of faith, going back where we started, going back to that confession. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that He has life, not the things that are distracting me right now, right? There's a famous statement in the history of the church that says all of the Christian life is about repentance. A lot of times when we hear that word repentance, we think failure. But what I need you to hear in the word repentance is training, training. Repentance is something that I do every day. Repentance is a redirect. It's a, it's a going back to the beginning. It's starting again, hopefully this time a little stronger than yesterday. That's what repentance is. And that's one thing that we might need to do. The second option there is church. Joseph and Mary go back to where they started. And when Jesus was born, they go to the temple to dedicate him to God. And that was the right thing to do according to the law. And then 12 years later, they find him in the very place where they started. And we could ask that of ourselves. How about us? When we lose God, where do we go? How about when we lose Jesus, we go back to the beginning? How did you learn about God? Go back to the beginning. What brought you to the saving knowledge of Jesus? Let me jog your memory with what it wasn't. It wasn't a building. It wasn't a a sanctuary called Community Christian Church. It might have been in this place, but it wasn't the building. It was a person, right? Whether it was in this building or some other building or maybe a camp or maybe just across the table at lunch, there was a person who said, here's what Jesus is doing in my life and they brought you to the Savior. And the odds are that when you lose God, you'll be able to find him again by going back to where you found him in the first place. His people and his people are called the church. When we lose God, we'll be able to find him in a pew. We'll be able to find him at the communion table. We'll be able to find him in an old hymn. Or we'll be able to find him in a new song. Why? Because there are fellow believers. There are fellow followers in this place that are desiring to find him too. And together, we can help each other find a lost Jesus. And so... 
Mary and Joseph go back to the temple. And it took a day to return to Jerusalem. It probably took another day to find Jesus. And so they're three days in at this point. And after searching and searching, they find him in the temple. And here's what they find. They find a learning Jesus who is in the temple. A learning Jesus. When Joseph and Mary found him, he's in the midst of Jewish teachers and rabbis, and he is asking them questions, and he is listening to their answers. And the text says that these teachers, these experts in theology, were amazed at both his questions and his answers. And the rabbis are a little thunderstruck, actually, at the deep intelligence and comprehension that this 12-year-old boy displays. This is no average, you know, Hebrew school boy. Um, his, the word answers in the text, the way he was answering, has the idea of distinctions. And it kind of implies that there was deep wisdom that God, that Jesus was displaying as he spoke about God. And the thing that we need to avoid in this picture is this, thinking that this boy Jesus is sitting around pointing a finger at all of his elders and straightening them out. That, that's not what the text says. That's not where it goes. It says he was just listening and he was asking questions. And that fits because God is love and love is listening. Love is listening. And the, and the teachers, because he is listening, because he's asking questions, are amazed. If we were writing it, we would write it this way. They were blown away. They were blown away by what we were saying. And someone else showed up who was also a little blown away, Mary and Joseph. But they're not blown away in amazement. They are blown away in kind of anger, right? This is a mom who has lost her son, and she's blown away in a fire coming out of her eye sockets kind of way because now we've found him, and here's dad who just wants mom to get his her, her son back. And so the rabbis are blown away by what they hear. And Mary and Joseph are blown away by what they see. And Mary is this frightened, panicked mom that is uh, profoundly relieved at this point. And she says, verse 48, very mom thing to say, why have you done this to us? What? What? We have been looking everywhere for you. It's kind of a mom shame going on here. After all we've done for you, this is how you repay us, son. How could you do this? I mean, nobody knows a mom like that, right? That, that doesn't happen. And she saves her deepest knife for last. She says, your father and I have been looking for you. We are greatly distressed. It's, it's as if our hearts were being ripped out while we looked for you. It's kind of that wait till your father gets home. But in the first century... Except Joseph is standing right there. And that's interesting because Jesus latches on to a word of Mary's that she uses there that nobody's expecting. She latches on to this phrase, your father. Your father and I have been looking for you. And he begins this way. He says, why are you looking for me? There's no issue here. And then he dives in in verse 49. He says, you should know who I am. And you should know that I must be, or it is necessary for me to be about my father's, and then depending on your translation, it says my father's business or my, my father's house or my father's things. None of those words are in the Greek. The Greek literally reads this, this way. Do not you know that in the father of me I must be? And so the place wasn't the thing. The temple wasn't the concern. Jesus' concern was that he be learning about his father. 
I've got to know God who is in heaven, and this is my chance to do it. And in this sentence, Jesus makes clear this distinction between Joseph, who is his adopted father, and God in heaven, who is his true father. When Jewish boys are 13, maybe you've heard of a little ritual that they all go through where they are introduced to the full responsibilities of adulthood. Anybody know what that's called? It is, yeah, it's a bar, mit, bit, uh, sorry, bar mitzvah, right? And every Jewish boy goes through this at 13, and they can finally become, uh, bar mitzvah literally means son of the commandment. And at 13, when they go through this, they can literally become, for the first time, the son of the commandment, which means that they are taking from that point on the full responsibilities of the law that God gave to Moses. And so somehow, when we look at Jesus and his life, we never think of Jesus having a bar mitzvah, but he surely would have had one. Um, And that story, for some reason, Luke leaves out. But here, a year earlier, a year earlier, he talks about Jesus going to the temple, and he's a year away away from that big moment. And the thing for us to ponder today is that year prior to the bar mitzvah that Jesus would have had. And I've said it a few times. uh, Maybe you got it so far. Jesus is how old? Twelve. Yes. And that's significant. Because for the year prior to a Jewish bar mitzvah, a Jewish father would enter into with his son a very focused and intense time of teaching and guiding. That was the normal thing. It was the father's responsibility to prepare his son for the big step that was coming when he turned 13. And so Joseph, no doubt, has been at this with Jesus. Here's how to be a man. Here's what it means to work. Here's how we follow God. Here's what you'll need to know to support yourself and lead a devoted life to God. I I imagine that he learned more about carpentry that year than any other, but he also learned more about life and more about God in that year than he did any other. And so taking Jesus on this trip to the temple would have been most appropriate. And as they're there at the Passover... Joseph was surely leading Jesus around. This is what the temple is, son, and this is why we go to the temple. And this is what the temple means. This is the Passover, and this is what the lamb means. This is what our faith means. This is why we are people of God. And it would have been at this time of intense mentoring, and everything would have gotten an extra layer of explanation from Joseph. And by the way, let's, let's pause there. And let's just ask ourselves, as dads, are we doing that? Are we being intentional with our sons? Are we being intentional with our daughters? Are we grabbing our sons and saying, you have what it takes. You can do this. Are we grabbing our daughters and saying, you are beautiful. I love you. Are we being intentional? Driving them to the source of life so that no matter what happens in life, they'll still be able to have a life. Because if Jesus isn't the center, (laughs) it just doesn't work. And so this was a very normal thing for Jewish dads and sons. And that has to make us pause a little bit. Because Mary says, your father and I are distressed. We were looking for you. And Jesus, the way he responds is, you should know that I'm here on earth to learn about my true father, God. 
One of the things that Passover would have brought together and brought about was a gathering of the greatest rabbis and greatest teachers and greatest theologians to the land, uh, to this city of Jerusalem all at once. Because of this feast and the Holy Week, these scholars and experts would assemble together and they would uh, more, more than likely discuss great truths among themselves. If, if we could think of it like a conference, right? I think that's, I think that's what was happening here. There's a conference going on. And there would have been discussions about a lot of things. And the Messiah would have been one of those discussions. It might have been a breakout session. And Jesus is cruising through the program. Oh, here's the one on the Messiah. That's me. I should probably go to that, even though they didn't ask me to speak. And so there's Jesus sitting in the middle of all of these uh, discussions. Unknown to these great teachers, learning and absorbing infinitely more than he ever could back in Nazareth. And infinitely more than Joseph himself could ever teach him. And so here's the thought. And this is full disclosure time. This is kind of conjecture. It's a guess. But it does make sense. And Jesus does seem to hint at it here. What if in the 12th year of Jesus' life, God was doing the same thing with Jesus that Joseph was trying to do? What if the heavenly father is taking this 12th year, the year before Jesus would officially become the son of the commandment, and he is being intensely strategic about it? What if God himself is teaching his own son, Jesus, like Joseph, the adopted father, was trying to do? What if his real father, God, was walking around Jerusalem with him, going about a million levels deeper than Joseph ever could Joseph would go to the temple and he would say, here's what we do here and why. And then his real father, God, would come in behind that and say, you know what? You are the temple. You're going to render this thing obsolete. And his father, Joseph, would have led him around Jerusalem saying there are great things of history, that pivotal moments in history that have happened here. King David walked along these streets and his real heavenly father would have come behind that and said, you are going to walk these streets and you are going to change all of history. All of history will pivot because of what you do when you walk these streets because you're going to be carrying a cross. And most surely... As they came to the Passover lamb at the end of the week, at the end of the meal, that that lamb that was shed, the blood was shed and put on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over the Israelite people. And this was a commemorative event of that event. And most surely when they came to that Passover lamb, Joseph would have led his family through that Passover feast and explained why they were killing the lamb, why they were commemorating God's deliverance from Egypt out of people, why people didn't have to die because of this lamb. And surely God would have come in behind that and said to Jesus, you're the lamb. You're the one who will lay down your life, shed your blood, so that people, even when they die, don't die. And God is steering Jesus. He's being intentional. He's making the most of this year. And this was Jesus' only known chance to hear the great rabbis in Jerusalem and discuss the law with him. And so steering him to the temple makes sense. And what is he learning? Look at verse 50. He's saying things about God that no one gets. He's talking in ways that no one talks. He says, my father... And no one talks about God like that. No one presumes that God is like an actual father, but Jesus 
does. Jesus presents a God who is present, a God who is someone you can call daddy, a God who is somebody who will let you leap up into his lap and talk about anything you want, someone you can relate to. That's not the awesome, fearful God of the theologians, and that's a radical concept. In the, in the entire Old Testament, 39 books and all of the years of history in the Old Testament, God is only referred to as Father 14 times. Just 14 times. And when he is referred to as Father in the Old Testament, it's always on a nationalistic level. It's never individual. It's always our Father or our Heavenly Father or nobody ever calls him like Jesus calls him. But 60 times in the New Testament. Jesus calls God Father. He addressed God as his Father. He never used any other term in all of his prayers. He addressed God as Father. And the gospel records using Father more than 60 times in reference to God. And what Luke is saying here is that Jesus had a relationship to God even when he was age 12, unlike anyone else ever. And what he's going to do is make it possible for us to have that same kind of relationship with God. And there is no way that anyone there can understand this at that point. That's why they're confused. That's why they're bewildered. He confuses the experts. They're blown away. He bewilders his parents. They're kind of blown away. And nothing has changed. Jesus still does that to us. He doesn't fit into any of my boxes that I want to create. He doesn't fit into the norms. He always brings new paradigms, new ways of life, and I just can't fit him into anything that I expect God to be. And it's difficult to fit Jesus when he brings the unexpected. He confounds the experts here by talking about God in ways they've never thought of, and he does that to us because he gives us glimpses of God that we don't think God should be like. It's confusing to us. When we look around our lives and we see good people face horrible circumstances, that doesn't make sense to us. That's not how God should be, but that's how he is. It's confusing to us when he says, I am just, and yet we look around and we see evil people winning the day all the time. That's confusing to us. That's not how God is supposed to be. It's confusing to us that he loves us, but he still lets us go through storms and terrible circumstances. It's confusing to us when God says there is a point to all of our suffering, and yet we all, all we around us, all we can see is pointless suffering or what seems to be pointless suffering. We got a dose of that in Branson this week. Why? Why, God? And we, we want to use Mary's words in times like that. Why Have you treated me like this? How can you treat me like this? After all I've done for you, this is what I get in return. It's confusing, it's mystifying, it's painful, it's disheartening, and it summons a crucial question. And this is the question, is the hinge point. And if we don't get this question right, then we're lost and we lose God forever. And this is the question. Why should I trust this kind of God who does these things that I cannot understand? Why, do I, why should I trust this God that doesn't fit what I think God should be or God should do? And of course, the vast majority of people in our world just immediately say, I can't. I can't trust a God like that, and I won't. But in this text is the reason why we can't. It's the last thing we see. We see a loving 
Jesus, a loving Jesus. It's in the very first red words ever recorded from the lips of Jesus. Some of you have the old school Bible in front of you, and these are red words, right? These are red letters. He says, why are you looking for me? I must be. It is necessary that I be in my father's house. And there's this clear tension about who the real father is. Mary says, your father and I were looking for you. Jesus says, I'm in my father's house. And that's a huge theological bomb here. Joseph might have been an adoptive father, but make no mistake, Jesus says, I am God's son. God is my real father. Joseph is a great man, but not that. And Jesus has a clear understanding, even in the first words we ever record from his lips, of who he was. I am God's son. Now, I want you to go back to when you were 12. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about all of the ways that, oh, I can't believe my parents did that to me. If only I was. Anybody? Anybody been there? What did you think about when you were 12? Man, every, every teenager everywhere would love this kind of power. As my kids were growing up, one of the phrases I'd rattle off as a parent was something like this. Uh, when they did something that was a little more than, more than unacceptable, I would say, God put big people with little people for a reason, and I'm the big one. And that means you're the little one. And that means what I say goes, and that will change later, maybe, if you ever get to that point, Okay. Uh, but you're not. But think about trying to say that to Jesus. Think about G- Joseph saying, I'm the big person here and you're, oh, wait a minute, you're bigger. But I'm the older person here and you, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> you're older. And maybe that famous line, you know what, I don't care, I'll take you out because I can make another one that looks just like you. Yeah, they can't do that because, oh yeah, Jesus made us. You see the problem. Jesus is the only human being ever to say, be able to say to his parents, listen to me because I am the authority. I'm older than you. I'm wiser than you. I'll be making the decisions around here because I am really in charge. And so what we have here in a 12-year-old Jesus is a glimpse that Jesus knew who he was. But without a beat, without even a skip, we understand that Jesus also knew what he was to do. The phrase, I must be in my father's house. It's also, it is necessary for me to, for me to be in my father's house. And that phrase has a parallel. Uh, it's somewhat identical in the Greek. And it's at the end of the book uh, that Luke writes. At the end, in chapter 24, there are two guys who have just come from a Passover feast like, like the, what we've been talking about today. And these two people, these two guys are walking away from Jerusalem and wondering about what they've just witnessed because they've just witnessed their Savior hung on a cross. 
And another traveler comes up with them, and they don't know it yet, but it's Jesus. It's a resurrected Jesus. And they begin to fill this newcomer in on what has happened in Jerusalem. Don't you know? Have you been under a rock? And they explained that their, their leader, Jesus, was crucified, that he was the hope, but now he's dead, and they're not sure what to do. They're kind of, they're kind of at wit's end right now, and they're not sure about anything anymore. And Jesus chimes in. They still don't know it's him. But he begins this way. Oh, you foolish people. Don't you know it is necessary that the Christ suffer in these ways? And then he started with the Old Testament. He taught them all about how the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer based on scriptures in the Old Testament. It says that he taught them about himself. And so in chapter 2, we have, Mom, Dad, it's necessary that I be about the Father. And in chapter 24, guys, it is necessary that the Christ should die this way. And what we see here in a 12-year-old Jesus is that he knew who he was, but he also knew exactly what he had to do. He was God in the flesh. He was the maker of the parents in front of him. He had infinite power behind this face full of pimples. But what does it say in verse 51? That he does with this infinite power. He goes home. He says that the word of life, the one who spoke everything into being that is, that he went home and he, what's the word? Submitted. Some of your translations say he obeyed the very parents that he had made. And there it is. That's why you should trust him. He didn't have to. But he did it anyway. And maybe that's why Luke chose this story in the beginning. Because at the end of the tale, Jesus will be in this same spot. He'll he'll be in a position where he doesn't have to allow nails to hold him to a cross. But he does anyway. He did it in obedience. In obedience to not his earthly parents, but to his heavenly father. And he came and he hung on a cross in obedience. It was necessary for him to be the obedience that I could never be so that I can have the relationship with God that I could never have otherwise. And that's love. To be in a position where nothing is required of of you and yet to do something anyway for the sake of someone else. That's love. And that's Jesus. That's a superhero, right? That's the God we worship. That's the God worthy of my trust. And if he went through this storm willingly and trusted that God would bring life in the end, then I can trust him for the same reason that I need to go through mine and that God will do the same for me. He'll bring me through that storm and he will make good of it and victory will come from it. I don't know how, but it will. And I trust because that's what he did with Jesus. The creator loved me when there was no reason to and it's difficult to forget Jesus. When he obeys the Father for me, for me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this Savior named Jesus that has done things on our behalf that we could never do. Father, help us. Maybe, maybe some of us have lost him today. Help us to find him. Help us to find him again in the believers around us. Help us to find him even in the troubles of this life. 
We may not see how he's bringing everything in the world to right, but he is. The timetable might not be ours, but help us to trust. Because the truth is that he has lived a perfect life for us. Love has given us what we didn't deserve. Jesus did that for us. Help us to find that kind of love again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding of his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Jennifer. It is pretty easy to lose God. Luke is the only gospel writer to include a story from Jesus' childhood. No other gospel writer includes anything about Jesus from the time he is a small child to the time he starts his ministry when he is about 30 years old. And only Luke includes a story in the, in, about Jesus' childhood. And in this text, this story that he chooses to include, he is 12. Jesus is 12. Presumably, Luke wrote because he was able to sit down with eyewitnesses, sit down with people who were really in these shoes and write from what they told him. So we assume that he sat down with Mary, Jesus' mother, and he said, tell me everything. And Mary would have told him all the stories that she could recollect, all the stories of Jesus and his youth. And Luke decides to take this one. Why this one? Well, it tells us a lot about Jesus, and it gives us some hints about his mission, even though he's 12. And so let's start this way. The text says that Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph and Mary were devout Jews, and they were headed up to the Passover feast. There were three feasts that all the Jewish people were uh, expected to attend. The Passover was one, the Pentecost feast was another, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three happened in Jerusalem. And all three were kind of required, but not everybody could afford to go to all three. And so if you only could choose one, it was always the Passover. The Passover was a week-long feast. It was kind of this national pride. It was kind of Fourth of July mixed in with a great family reunion with God at the center of everything that they did. And so Joseph packed up the minivan. He loaded all of his you know, kids, all of his family into... Uh, into the van and they get to Jerusalem and they spend this week with family and friends and they keep God at the center. They do everything that they're supposed to do on Passover. And then after about a week, they start heading home. And just one problem, they get about a day's journey away and they start looking around and guess what? No, Jesus. Jesus is nowhere. He's missing. Wait a minute. He's not with you? I thought he was with you. No, he's not with me. I thought he was with you. Where where in the world? And there's panic. And uh, we're told Joseph and Mary are greatly distressed in the text. They're in pain. And you can understand that if you've ever had a lost kid, right? The first thing we see in the text is a lost Jesus. A lost Jesus. And probably the first question that anybody has about this little story when they read it is, how in the world do you lose a kid? 
<laughs> in those days, people traveled, especially to feasts like this, to Jerusalem, in really big groups. Uh, families would have traveled together. Whole villages might have traveled together, and they would keep an eye on each other and everyone else's children. And one of the things that they did was the women and children would set the pace up front so that the pace wasn't too fast. And the men and the younger men would have stayed in the back. And what age is Jesus again? Twelve. That puts him right in the middle, right? And so there are times that he could have been up with the women and children. There are times that he could have been back with the men. And Mary thought he's one place and Joseph thinks he's another. And maybe both of them think, oh, he's with some other family. And that's how you lose a kid. That's a different way, right? It's not, not like we're loading up for a family vacation and we leave a kid at the gas station. Anyone? <laughs> when you think about that, Mary and Joseph seem like superstar compar- parents compared to some of, some of us. I, I, was in, I was in at least three different groups this last week, and uh, groups of people, and I asked them, because we, you know this was the story this week, I said, uh, give me a time that either you were a kid and were lost, or give me a time where you were in charge of a kid and you, you lost a kid. And I had teachers say, oh yeah. There's this one time we were on this trip and this kid, man, and it was a whole fiasco. And I had a grandparent say, yeah, my grandchild came over and couldn't find him. And, and uh, I had uh, moms and dads. There was nobody that was, that was without a story. Everybody's had a time where they've lost a kid or they've been lost. Um, Jamie is our ministry administrator. And uh, she told a story on her husband, Bob. And uh, I will relate it to you today and get Bob in trouble uh, because it's not a stellar day for Bob. Way back when, uh, their oldest, Kyle, was maybe kindergarten, first grade. And he was, uh, Bob was playing softball at the time, so they played over on the fields over here at the college. And he decided to take Kyle with him because there's a playground over there. And so Kyle was playing in the playground, Bob's playing softball, and of course, you know, it's, it's a great game and, you know, he makes the winning play or whatever. And, and uh, he's so excited, he gets in the car and he goes home and, and he bursts through the door and he tells Jamie about this monumental hit that he had and the great way that he won the game. And she said, that's wonderful, honey. Where's my son? I will be right back. (laughs) And uh, he headed out here, obviously frantic, panicked, right? He got there and no Kyle. Kyle is gone. In the meantime, Kyle has decided nobody's here. Everybody left me. I guess I need to walk home. Little kindergarten, first grader. They lived over in uh, about the 700 block of Crawford or Judson, I think, somewhere in there. Okay, so that's quite a hike for a kindergarten first grader. He found Dairy Queen somehow, <laughs> which, is, which is now the butcher block, but it used to be Dairy Queen. And he knew that if he found Dairy Queen and he went a certain direction from Dairy Queen, that he would stumble onto some houses that eventually that he would recognize. And uh, I tell you what, uh, Jamie said during that trip where they had lost Kyle, this was before cell phones. So they're trying to, you know, call one another from pay phones and the home phone and the home phone's tied up because Jamie's calling the prayer chain and the prayer chain is all activated. And, and uh, Ron Billiard, one of our elders, was even there on their, on their front porch praying for, you know, that they would find Kyle. It was a whole deal. And let's just say it wasn't a great day for Bob, okay? <laughs> and 
It's one thing, no offense to Kyle, no offense to Bob and Jamie, it's one thing to lose a kid in Fort Scott, America, right? But to lose the Son of God. Think about how Mary and Joseph would have been feeling. They would have been beating themselves up, right? They would have been blaming themselves. They're their own worst critics. And the, 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 the way you lose the Son of God is the way you lose any other kid. You get distracted. Bob was thinking of the great play. Bob was thinking of the dramatic way that they won the game. Bob was thinking of the, you know, the thing that that guy said to him and what he said back. And, and all of a sudden he's at home and he's missing a kid. We get distracted. And it's not just Mary and Joseph that get distracted and lose the Son of God. We get distracted, right? And we lose the Son of God sometimes. It's difficult to find Jesus when we are distracted. Sometimes it's the world that distracts us, those forces that pull us away from God and His will and His kingdom. Sometimes it's just the busyness of life that distracts us. We have all of these things that we try to pack into the day and we come to the end of it and we realize, oh, God wasn't a part of the day. Sometimes we get distracted even by the good things that we can do. We do stuff for God. We do ministry for God. But we get so busy doing those good things for God that we forget that God is the reason we're doing these things in the first place. And we miss Him. We lose Jesus. Mary and Joseph were doing what faithful and devout Jewish people did. They were going to Jerusalem to observe this religious festival. And in in the middle of this religious pilgrimage that is designed to refocus people on God, they lose God. It's possible. So the question is, what do we do when we lose God? And I want you to take a look at what, just first, what Joseph and Mary do. It's something pretty instinctual. They head back to Jerusalem. Bob head back, headed back to the softball fields, right? The backstory here is that Mary and Joseph actually go back to the beginning. We could say that because the temple was where Mary and Joseph, Jerusalem itself was where Mary and Joseph took Jesus when he was first born to dedicate him to God. And that's pretty good advice for us too, to go back to the beginning. And there are two possible ways that we can go back to the beginning. There's one blank in your, in your bulletin. I'm going to give you two options for that blank. You just pick the one that applies to you today. The first word we could write there is repent. Repent. If there's a biblical concept for going back to the beginning, it would be this word, repentance. Repentance is all about going back. It's about turning around and going a different way. It's about going back to where we started, back to the basics of faith. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Going back to that. To say, you know what, God, I've been distracted by all of this other stuff, but I'm going back to where I started. I believe that life is in you and not in any of these other things. So I'm going to put you in the center of everything that I do. There's a famous statement in the history of the church that says all of Christian life is repentance. The thing that we fall into, the trap, is that when we throw out this word repentance, a lot of us, a lot of us hear that word and we think failure. But I need you to think training when you hear that word. Repentance isn't about failing. Repentance is about training. Repentance is about getting up and saying, God, I commit this day all over to you again, and hopefully I'm a little better today than I was yesterday. That's what repentance is about. That's why it's every day. That's why all of Christian life is about repentance. So the other option for that blank is church. Church. 
Joseph and Mary go back to where they started. And when Jesus was born, they go to the temple. They dedicate him to God. That was the right thing to do according to the law. And when they lose him 12 years later, ironically, they find him in the very place where they started. So we could ask ourselves that same question. How about us? When we lose Jesus, where do we go? Maybe we should go back to the beginning. So tell me, go back to the beginning in your mind. How did you learn about Jesus? How did you learn about the saving grace of Jesus? Let me jog your memory and remind you of probably how you didn't learn of the saving grace of Jesus. You didn't learn it from a building. Oh, these, these buildings are great. Community Christian Church is a great place. It's a great building. But it's not the church. The church is God's people, right? And if you go back to the beginning and you think about how you were given this message of the saving grace of Jesus, it always involved a person. It was a person saying to you, here's what Jesus meant to me. Here's what Jesus has done in my life. I think he can be your savior too. It always goes back to a person and that's the church. And when we lose God, the odds are well overwhelming that we'll be able to find him again in the pew, right? In the communion table. We'll be able to find him again in an old hymn or maybe a new song. Why? Because the other people who are trying to find him also are there with us. That's how the church is supposed to work. And so when we lose Jesus, go back to the beginning. Maybe we should do both. Maybe we should repent. And maybe we should go back to his people, the church. And so Mary and Joseph go back. They go back to the beginning. It took them a day to return to the city, Jerusalem. It probably took them another day to find Jesus. And so they are three days in at this point. And after searching, what they find is a learning Jesus, a learning Jesus. He's found in the temple. And in the temple, in some corner of it, he's in the middle of a circle. And there are Jewish teachers and rabbis. And he is part of that circle and he is asking them questions and he is listening to their answers. And the text says that the teachers are amazed at both his questions and his answers. They are thunderstruck by the deep comprehension that this 12-year-old Jewish boy is displaying. He's not the normal uh, kid at Hebrew school, right? Okay. And um, the thing that we need to avoid here as we picture this in our minds, we need to avoid this thought that the little boy Jesus is sitting around straightening out his elders, like pointing a finger, straightening out the teachers of the law and the rabbis. That's not what's happening here. The text does not say anything like that. It just says he was listening and asking questions. And that fits. Why? Because God is love and love is listening. Love is listening. And so the teachers and the rabbis are amazed. And if we were writing this, we would write it this way. They were blown away. There was somebody else that stumbled upon that scene, and they were also blown away. It was not the rabbis and teachers. It was Mary and Joseph. And they are blown away in a little different sense. This is mom who has lost her son, and she's blown away in a fire coming out of my eye sockets kind of way, 
right? And now I finally found you, and what the heck are you doing to me? How can you do this to me, right? And dad is with her, and he just wants mom to get her son back, so she's not, you know, uh, frantic. And um, so the rabbis are blown away by what they hear, and Mary and Joseph are blown away by what they see. And this frightened, panicked, upset mom says what a mom would say in verse 48. Why have you done this to us? There's a little bit of uh, mom guilt and shame there put on like only moms can do. And then she says, after all we've done for you, this is how you repay us, right? Nobody has a mom like that, right? She saves her deepest knife for last. She says, your father and I have been looking for you. It's kind of the first century equivalent to wait, just wait till your father gets home. That, that's what's going on here. And that's interesting because Jesus latches on to that phrase, your father. And that's why I'm making a big deal of it. And he begins in verse 49. He says, why are you looking for me? There's no issue here. And he says, you should know who I am. You should know that I must be, or you should know that it is necessary for me to be about my father's, and depending on your translation, it says uh, my father's business or my father's house or my, my father's things. Those, that word, whatever it is in your translation, is not in the Greek text. The Greek literally reads, do not you know that in the father of me I must be? In other words, it wasn't the temple that was the thing. It was God. The temple isn't the important part. God is the important part. Jesus is emphatic. I've got to be about learning about my Father. I've got to know God who is in heaven because He is my Father, and this is my chance to do so. And in this this one sentence, Jesus makes this distinction between Joseph, who is His adopted Father, and God in heaven, who is His real, true Father. At age 13... Every Jewish boy goes through um, a celebration where he is introduced to the full responsibilities of adulthood. And you probably know, you've probably heard about what that celebration is and what it's called. It's called a bar mitzvah. Yes. Bar mitzvah literally means son of the commandment. And when a, when a Jewish boy turns 13, he goes through this bar mitzvah so that he can literally from then on become a son of the commandment. And from that point on, the full responsibilities of the law that, gave Moses, that God gave Moses are upon his shoulders. And he is now officially an adult. It's odd that we never look back at the life of Jesus and think about him having a bar mitzvah. But surely he did. But Luke doesn't include that story. He includes this one. And it's a year before that would have happened. He's 12, right? And the thing that we need to understand is that for the year prior to the bar mitzvah, that there was something that a Jewish father would do to prepare his son for that day when he was 13 and he would become a son of the commandment. The Jewish fathers would prepare their sons for that step that was coming. And so Joseph, no doubt, has been out the, at this with Jesus. So it was an intense time of, of training and focus. And Joseph would have said to Jesus, here's how to be a man. 
and here's what it means to work, and here's how, what it means to follow God, here's what it means to pray. Jesus probably learned more about carpentry that year than any year, probably more about life that year than any year he had so far, probably more about God than any other year. And so taking Jesus on this trip to the Passover, to this celebration, to the temple at age 12 would have been most appropriate. He would have said, this is the temple, son. And this is why we go to the temple. And this is what the temple means. And this is the Passover. And this is what the Passover means. And this is what the Passover lamb means. And this is who we are as a people of God. And this intense mentoring happened the whole year when they were 12. And maybe we should pause there and just ask, Dads, are you that? Are you being intentional with your sons? Are you saying, you have what it takes? Here's how to navigate life. Here's how to be a man. Dads, are you being intentional with your daughters? You're beautiful. I love you. You're the princess of the world. And here's how to navigate life. And here's how to be steered back to the only person that can really give us life at the end of the day, Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in life, You'll always find life in Him. Are, you, are we intentional about steering our kids in that direction? And so it was a normal thing for Jewish dads to do for their sons. And that has to make us pause. Because Mary says, your father and I, and he, she's meeting Joseph, were distressed. We were looking for you. And Jesus responds this way. You should know I'm here on earth for my real father. One of the other unusual things that the Passover would have brought about was a gathering of the greatest rabbis and teachers and theologians in the Jewish world. They would have all descended on Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And these scholars would have no doubt assembled at the temple and they would have uh, gathered together to teach and discuss great truths among themselves. Uh, Think about it as a conference, right, that we would go to. It was kind of that feel. And so we can imagine Jesus stumbling into that and one of the, you know, he's reading through the program. One of the breakout sessions is Messiah. You know, let's talk about the Messiah. And he's like, oh, that's me. I should probably go to that. Even though they didn't ask me to speak, I'm kind of bummed. But so he would go and uh, he is this 12-year-old kid, but he's the Messiah. He is unknown to any of these rabbis, these great teachers, but he is observe, uh, absorbing and learning infinitely more than he ever could in Nazareth and infinitely more than even Joseph could have ever taught him. And so here's, here's the thought. And this full disclosure here, this is, this is conjecture a little bit. We're reading between the lines here, but it's a guess, but it makes sense. And I think Jesus actually even does hint at it. What if in the 12-year-old life of Jesus, God, his heavenly father, was doing the same thing that his earthly father was trying to do? What if God, his real father, is taking that 12th year and being intensely strategic about it, focusing on Jesus on becoming that son of the commandment? What if God himself is teaching Jesus? What if Joseph, as he's walking around Jerusalem, is teaching Jesus, and yet God is coming behind that teaching and going a million levels deeper? What if Joseph is saying, 
This is the temple. And this is why we worship. And this is what we do here. And this is how we relate to God. And God, the true Father, comes in behind that teaching and says, You are the temple. You're the real temple that's going to destroy this one, to make it obsolete. What if Joseph is walking around Jerusalem and saying, hey, there's history on these streets. King David walked on these streets and he turned all of the history of Israel. And the real Father God is coming in behind that and saying, Jesus, you also will walk on these streets and all of history will, will pivot because of what you're going to do on these streets. But it will mean that you'll carry a cross as you walk on them. And almost surely, uh, Joseph would have led his family through the Passover meal. And the, the culmination of that Passover meal was the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb was... Uh, a, a reference to what happened in Egypt where the lamb's blood was put on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over the Israelite people so that none of their firstborn would die. And Joseph did a great job of leading his family through that remembrance. And what if God came in behind and said to Jesus, see that lamb? You are that lamb. There's another lamb that has to die so that other people will live even though they die and you are that lamb. God is steering Jesus, being intentional to make the most of an opportunity. And that makes sense, right? The temple makes sense. And so he's learning. And he's learning really well from the Father. Look at verse 50. He's saying things about God no one gets. He's talking in ways no one talks. He's saying, my father, my father, over and over. And no one talks like that. No one, that's a radical, radical concept. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books and only 14 times is God referred to as father. And every one of those times, it is in reference to a nation, like he is the father of the Jewish nation, not never about individuals. He's never a father to individuals. And yet Jesus comes on the scene, even at verse 12 or age 12. And he says, I love my father. It's my father. That's why I'm here. And he's saying it in reference to daddy. He's, he's saying my father is so relatable to me. My God is so relatable to me. He's like a daddy that I could crawl crawl up in his lap and say anything to, share anything with. And Luke is telling us here that Jesus had a relationship to God unlike anyone else ever. Jesus is going to make it possible for you and I to have that kind of relationship with God. And there is no way at this point that anybody understands that. The rabbis, the teachers, they're confused. They're blown away. His parents, Jesus, Joseph... And Mary, they're confused, they're bewildered, they're blown away. Nothing has changed. Jesus still confounds us today. He doesn't fit into the boxes that we kind of create for God and say, this is how God should be. This is what God should do. Jesus does not fit into those norms. He always brings new learning into our lives, new paradigms. And I can't fit him because it's difficult to fit Jesus. When he brings the unexpected, and that's what we see at every turn. He confounds the experts by talking about God in ways they've never thought of. He does that to us. Things that don't fit how we think God should be. We look around at our world and it's confusing to us when good people face horrible circumstances. Anybody? Yeah. 
That's confusing. God, that doesn't fit with a loving God. We look around our world and it's confusing to us that he says he is just. God says, I am a just God. And yet we look around and we see evil people ruling the day. How does that work? That doesn't fit in my box of what God should do and what God should be about. It's confusing to us that he loves us, but he still lets us go through storms. We don't get that. That doesn't fit the God that we want. It's confusing to us when God says there's a point to all suffering. And yet when we look around, all we can see is seemingly pointless suffering. Anybody read about Branson this week? Man, why God? That doesn't fit after all we've done for you. We get this in return and we want to use Mary's words in times like these. what What are Mary's words? How can you treat me like this? This isn't what God should be about. It's confusing. It's mystifying. It's painful. It's disheartening. And it summons a crucial question. And this question is the hinge point. If we get it right, then we're good. If we get it wrong, we are lost. And the question is, why should I trust a God who doesn't fit into the box that I want to create? The God that doesn't fit what I think God should be or do. Why should I trust him? And some people in our world just immediately say, I can't trust him. I can't trust a God like that. I won't trust a God like that. Thank you very much. I'm going to move on to something else. But in this text, I want want to show you why we can. Why we can trust a God who doesn't fit our concept of what a God should be. It's because we see, number three in this text, a loving Jesus. A loving Jesus. It's in the very first red words recorded from the lips of Jesus. Some of you have old school and, uh, you know, the words of Jesus are in red. These are the very first ones. He's 12 years old. He says, why are you looking for me? Don't you know who I am? It is necessary that I be in my father's house. And there's a clear tension between who his real father is and who his adopted father is. And there's a huge theological bomb here because Joseph might be an adoptive father, but make no mistake, I am not Joseph's son. I am God's son. I am the son of God. And here in the first recorded words of Jesus, Jesus understands clearly who he is. Is. Now think about what that means. I want you to do so by going back to your 12-year-old self. Go back to when you were 12 years old. What were you wearing? <laughs> what was your hair like? Who were you with? What issues did you have with the authority figures in your life? What issues did you have with your parents that they just didn't get, right? And what 12-year-old on the planet wouldn't want to be God's son. Every teenager everywhere would love this kind of power. One of the phrases I would rattle off as a parent when my kids kind of got out of bounds and they tried to rule a little more than they should in our house, I would say something along these lines, God put big people with little people for a reason and I'm big and you're small and one day that will change but it's not today so you're going to do what I tell you to do, right? Um, When you're big, you can make the rules, but that's how it works. But I want you to think about trying to say that to Jesus. Joseph trying to say, hey, I'm the big person here and you are... Oh, wait a minute. You're actually bigger. (laughs) 
wait a minute, I'm the older person, the wiser person here, and you're just, oh, wait a minute, you're actually older than I am and infinitely wiser than me. I'm the authority here and you're going to, wait a minute, you made everything that there is to make. You made everything that we see. And Jesus is the only human being ever to be able to say to his parents, listen to me because I really am the authority. I made everything that you see. And I will be making decisions around here because I'm older than you. My way goes because I'm actually really in control of everything. That's where Jesus was. And so what you have here in a 12-year-old Jesus is a glimpse that Jesus knew who he was. And yet, without missing a beat, he also knew what he was to do. The phrase, I must be in my father's house, could also be, it is necessary. And it has a parallel later in the book of Luke. At the end of the Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, he will include a story and he will use this phrase again. Jesus will, it's in red letters there too. There are two guys that have just ironically come from the Passover feast. And it's the very Passover feast where Jesus has been hung on a cross and crucified. And they have looked at him as Savior and the hope of all Israel. And now he is dead. He's hanging on a cross and they're walking away from Jerusalem. And they have no hope. They are disheartened. And all of a sudden, a third traveler pops in and starts walking with them. They don't know it, but it's Jesus. It's resurrected Jesus. And they start telling this newcomer, What has happened in Jerusalem as if he didn't know? Did you hear what happened? All hope is lost. Our Savior, Jesus, was hung on a cross. And he was, we banked everything on him. And now there's nothing left. We're not sure what to do. And Jesus chimes in. They still don't know it's him. But he says, oh, foolish people. (laughs) You're so slow. And he says this, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to these two guys in all the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, all the things about himself and what it was necessary that he do. And so in chapter 2, you have mom and dad, it is necessary that I be about my father. And in chapter 24, you have guys, it is necessary that the Christ should die this way. And what we see here, even at the beginning in 12-year-old Jesus, is that he knew who he was, but he also knew exactly what he was to do. He was God in the flesh. He was creator of everything, maker of the very parents that were in front of him, infinite power behind this face full of pimples. And yet, what does it say in verse 51? It says that the word of life, the logos, the one who spoke everything into existence, went home. And what's the word? Submitted. Maybe your translation says, obeyed the parents that he had made. And there it is. That's why you should trust. That's why you should trust this God. Because he didn't have to, but he did it anyway. And maybe that's why Luke chose uh, chose this story. Because at the end of the tale, Jesus will be in the same spot. He doesn't have to hang on a cross, but he does it anyway. He doesn't have to obey, but he does it anyway. And this time his obedience is not to earthly parents. It's to his heavenly father. 
And he says, it is necessary that I hang on a cross so that others can live. It is necessary that I obey so that others could find the obedience to God that they can never live up to. And that's love. Love is to be in a position where nothing is required of us, and yet we do it anyway for the sake of someone else. And that's, that's a superhero, right? That's Jesus. That's a God worthy of my trust. And the Creator loved me when there was no reason to, and it's so difficult to forget Jesus when He obeys the Father for me, especially knowing what that meant. Father, I thank You that You have...